Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Welcome, everybody. I have a special guest today to talk about the January 6th committee hearings this week. Uh, Juliet Kayyem is a nationally recognized expert in homeland security and crisis management issues. She's a national security analyst for CNN. I'm sure you've seen her on there a whole bunch of times. She is faculty chair of the Homeland Security and Security and Global Health Projects at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And I invited her here today to talk about these hearings, what impact, if any, she thinks they're having, and what this investigation means for the country going forward. Here I am with Juliet. Welcome back to the podcast, Juliet. Thank you for being here again. I'm so thrilled. We're old buddies. So this, we're not old. We're buddies. No, we're not old. We're just buddies who know each other. And you, uh, Buddy, are an incredible national security expert. We see you on CNN regularly. And I really could not let the moment pass without chatting with you about the hearings that are taking place this week. I know you've been watching them. Tell us what, in your view, have been the most impactful part of the hearings so far. Well, I'm talking to you on Tuesday. So that's after hearing number three, which I would Three, yeah, which I would describe as, I think, the most emotionally raw one. I mean, this, you know, the first one was sort of all the crazies on January 6th and, and the White House and the violence, but it still felt, um, you know, distant in a way. Like it was sort of like, oh, history. Then the second one was about the law and the lawyers and no one standing up to Trump. And then this one was, here's the people who were brave enough, unlike his circle, unlike Trump's family, to stand up to him. And here's the consequences of what happened to them. Here's the harassment. Here's the fear. Here's the the anger that they incited. There's there's a Georgia uh, poll worker, African-American woman. I apologize. I'm forgetting her name. And she testified today after Giuliani put her picture up, basically alleging her and her mother had been stealing votes. And what happened to her, and there's this moment that I think every woman will recognize, it was, uh, she talks about her weight gain under the stress, which most women, we all, we all feel. And I was like, that's such a raw thing to admit. It's so hard to admit. And she goes, I've gained 40 pounds since this happened. 60. I, like, I think she said 60. 60. And 60. you're like, that's like so raw and honest. And like every woman could just be like, yeah, I get that. Like, this is like, you know, the nervous eating that we do and stuff. And that seems silly thing to like focus on. But I really was like, yeah, this is a moment when you just see like the impact it had on people. This one of the other people who testified, his son had passed away. He didn't say why. And his daughter-in-law and their two kids live nearby. She was harassing and she's a widow. And you're like, like the kind of crap. You know, it, was, it wasn't just like a bunch of like losers doing X, Y, they were like really harming people. Um, I, but overall, uh, you know, I, I uh, write a lot about this for The Atlantic and my general sense is there's a bunch of ways to look at the hearing. So there's, there's the legal way and, and our colleagues are on air all the time talking about this law and incitement and criminal liability and and the attorney general, Merrick Garland, and what he, what's he going to do? And I think that's like one lane. The other is, of course, the historical significance of this. And then my lane, or what I would say is my lane, because this is my professional focus, which is the, the radicalization lane. That if you, 
if you view the insurrection as ongoing, then you should view what the January 6th committee is doing as a sort of deprogramming, counter-radicalization off-ramp. They are isolating Trump. They are putting him within the, 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 the violence. He doesn't get to hide from what he unleashed. They are trying to give an off-ramp to people to say, this guy is a big loser. And he's just a big loser. And, and, and you want to get off this ramp. And I think they've been very successful in that regard, too. Let's talk about that for a moment. Um, you're referring to your piece in The Atlantic, a great piece, where you. you talk about that part of the value of these hearings is to give people who have so far been unable or unwilling to divorce themselves from this fraud on democracy. Right. You say part of the, the the purpose is to give them a way out. Now they've yeah. got a way out. I want to dig into that just for a moment because uh, you're right. T- today was the day. By the time this airs, uh, that'll be Thursday. Today's Tuesday. And we heard from people who were personally impacted by this lie. We heard Shea Moss talk about how her uh, people came and harassed her grandmother, her 70-something grandmother. Is this going to move the needle in any appreciable way? I I heard one commentator, uh, one of your colleagues on CNN said, uh, I think it was George Conway, he said that he thought that this was the have you no decency moment. Yeah. I mean, that was the moment in the McCarthy hearings where, you know, for our younger listeners, uh, where Uh uh, uh, kind of the McCarthyism uh, was brought to heel. Is this that moment or is that presumptuous? No, I think it is. So so we have to, not all Trump supporters are alike. So you're going to have his radicalized element, those who, who would justify violence or are utilizing violence. I'm done with them. I mean, in other words, and remember, I come from counterterrorism. So I view this through the lens of what works to end violent movement. So, so there's going to be a core that you're prosecuting, you're isolating, you're deep, what we call deplatforming, and you don't, you don't worry about them in the same way. But where we are now is, so how do ter- how do violent movements, people get nervous about the word terrorism, but whatever, like how do violent movements end? Will they either grow or they weaken. Those are your only two options. So how do you get it to weaken is you show the leader as a fraud, only looking out for himself, willing to throw people under the bus, willing to use violence in ways that he's trying to hide, right? Like Trump had been trying to hide all of that. And today was like, and and today was like the day where you can't be with him. I mean, in other words, you, you can no longer be with him and separate the violence. And that's what, those are the offerings we're looking at. It's not going to come in one fell swoop. It's going to come because women see what he did to these women and begin to think, how can I be with this person? That evangelicals who hear the Arizona Secretary of State talk about his faith, right? I mean, that was that was powerful. And people on the left go, oh, faith, or not not all people, I apologize, but a lot of people view, you know, that as phony. It's not. It was like, I found it so moving, like his faith and he gives people of faith an off ramp and that's happening throughout. His daughter abandons him. Well, why do you want to be with a guy that who can't even keep his daughter? And each of these is a narrative that, you know, will, will convince people. I, 
I have a line in the article. It's probably my favorite, one of my favorite lines I've ever written. That's called that says, "Look, democracies don't die in a single moment, and neither do violent movements. We just have to see it as part of an important narrative." Arizona Speaker of the House, you're referring to, and that was that was another really powerful moment where. He said that, yeah, he believes, and again, folks, whether or not you believe this is neither here nor there, he believes yeah. that the Constitution is divinely inspired. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and I'm like, you know what, whether or not you believe in God or don't believe in God, here is somebody who says the Constitution is a part of my religious faith. I will not denigrate it. It is a moment that I think allows for some bipartisan solidarity, because this really is the moment where, you know, the super secular progressives, and I'm, I don't know who falls into that camp. I'm just randomly yeah. making up labels. But this is a moment where the super secular progressive constitutionalists and the uh, religious evangelical strict constructionists and Trump voters can come together. Trump voters, voters can say, you know what? At the end of the day, when you lose, you lose. And we will not subvert the Constitution right. uh, for our own political gain. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So you say that this, these hearings provide an off-ramp. Everybody's not going to take that off-ramp all at once. But let me ask you this, and I know that, you know, I mean, you're just being predictive. Will that off-ramp come before November, because what we've seen oh, is that yeah. there are a number of state offices that may be held in the future by people who've indicated that they will embrace a lie. And then yeah. if you also couple that, Juliet, with the fact that the people who've had the political courage uh, to say, you know what, I'm not going to embrace the lie, have been in jeopardy of losing their seats. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking to you, Liz Cheney. Uh, and yeah. the folks who've said, you know what, I'm going to take this lie. <laughs> I'm going to take this lie to the next election. Some of them are doing quite well. So how soon is this off-ramp going to provide the... I wish this were happening a year ago where we can just continue to eviscerate the lie. But so I don't know if it happens in time. I think that this is going to be, you know, I think Trumpism will be an element of the Republican Party until a leader emerges who's either not of the Republican Party or challenges it. I think today gave someone like that room. I don't, but I, I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, the the stronghold he has is, is, you know, does it die before November? I think that's going to be hard to imagine. But the way I think about it is, are we giving the people who challenge them counter arguments? That's really important. I tweeted, I wish this was in the column, I tweeted, it's like, He's not Voldemort. Like, like, and I think people who really are worried about him, we tend to think like he's untouchable and no one will ever move or whatever. The January 6th committee is proving he's touchable and indefensible. You cannot support him simply because you don't like the alternative, right? And that's, I think, very important. Let me ask you this, Juliet. Let's assume that whatever moral outrage is that these hearings generate is not enough to defeat folks at the polls who are still yeah. embracing uh, the big lie. What do the rest of us do? 
What yeah. is, what should the rest of us be preparing for? And when I say the rest of us, I'm not talking about Democrats or Republicans. I'm talking about people who believe yeah. that if you lose an election, you have to step aside and that you've got to yeah. respect the will of the American people. That's the us I'm talking about, regardless of your, your politics and your, your political preferences. So for those of us who fall into that camp, what are we supposed to what are we supposed to do because look we're seeing uh, folks who challenge the lie get hurt we're seeing folks who embrace the lie do well in some cases not in all cases that continues to hold true there will be another coup there will be another right. one simply because the consequences yeah. of, a, of of a coup against the country thus far have not been that great frankly for people who've enabled it so what do we do you continue to isolate the leader terror so everyone talks about DeSantos and Abbott and whatever no that he, Trump is not replaceable. And we're seeing that, right? In other words, the more he's offline, the more he's isolated financially, the more you have Republicans, as I mentioned in the article, like Asa Hutchinson, a couple congressmen now saying he's a liability in 2024. You're going to start to get an argument that he's no longer sort of a, a viable. So you isolate him, you prosecute the troops and that's happening close to 800 cases. You and all of them are testifying one, that they thought that they had the president's support and two, that the president would bail them out. Ain't going to happen, buddies. You know, you're in jail. So you, so, and why is that significant? Because it is hard for terror organizations, which I believe Trump has led or whatever the word, you know, in other words, he's, he's the leader of terror, right? That, that it tells people I can't join this because I'll end up in jail, right? It's, you know, doing what they were doing when they thought there were no consequences is very different than doing what they were doing when they lose their job or in jail. You're seeing the third, you're seeing the leaders of the terror organizations, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers are turning on the president. So you're going to get a lot more information about the violence. So those so each of these begins to, you know, once again, the, these organizations do not die in a single soup, but it begins to put pressure because terror groups can or violent groups can only exist with recruitment and leadership. So you go after both. On the positive side, I mean, it goes without saying voting and running for office. I mean, what we're seeing, the bozos who run for office, is just incredible, right? Like, so run for anything and run for everything. It's not a joke. Like you can, you can, if these guys can win, you can win. Right. So you're, you, you run in areas where it's close. There's going to be some, some that are locked out. Uh, and then the other is just do, you know, what I'm doing, what others are now doing, which is call it out, not as a legal, like, I think we get so tied in the legal, like, you know, like, all the networks will have a bunch of legal scholars. I was like, I'm, I'm kind of uninterested in this at this stage. Like, this is this is about violence and it's about radicalization. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about, so it's four, five days after, I'm a frequent contributor to The Atlantic, five days after January 6th, I wrote a column that was um, ending the MAGA terror. And it basically said, we have to use the counterterrorism frame. I got vilified, not just by the right, but by the, what I call the precious left. Like, we don't talk like that. You don't, you know, I was like, I don't know what else he is. He's using violence as a form of political engagement. That's terrorism, right? I mean, in other words, and I think, I think we have to stop being polite, honestly, and call this what it is. And, and to be clear, 
you are not saying that everyone who no. supported President Trump or uh, defends his policies or voted for him, you are not saying that those people support terrorism. You are speaking very specifically about the former president's assertion that he won the last election and the made-up claims that he's made uh, about what happened in 2020. I, I think we should be clear about right. that because that's why it's been hard, I think, for this off-ramp. Your right. point is that there is a line between that conservative voter, whether or not it be an economically conservative voter, an evangelical voter who supported this president, there's a line between that voter and someone who can support what was essentially a coup on the United States of yeah. America. That's exactly right. And, and the narrator is not me, not you. The narrator is his daughter. The off-ramp has to be built by the Trump supporters, uh, by the by the formerly Trump team, because they know how we we felt the same way. I felt the same way for eight years, or however long this man has been in our brain for eight years. So that's the way to think about it. Is is the narration has shifted in terms of that off ramp. Is there a continuing work that needs to be done? I mean, I, I think that, you know, and we're kind of touching on it here. It is important to distinguish between people, you know, yes. who vote differently or people who supported President Trump and people who support this lie. Do you think that everybody else has to be really conscious uh, or yes. more conscious, I should say, about how we talk about political difference? Yeah, I do. And I think... If you are a critic of Trump, if you are someone whose group, woman, African-Americans, whoever he's targeted, like you don't have to forgive. You don't even have to, to, to understand. What you have to do is strategize about the best way for this country to save itself. And that strategy is going to include welcoming, accepting the off-ramp because it won't work otherwise. It just won't. And I think I think the January 6th committee is, is, is helping us figure that out. How important is it that you think there be criminal prosecutions of senior folks? I think it's important. I don't think it's a precondition for, for success. And that's my point. Like if we judge success only as Giuliani and Trump are in orange jumpers, you know, jumpsuits, in prison and in a high max, you know, in prison in Colorado. If we measure success only that way, we will lose. We will because that may not happen. We have to measure success as: Is Donald Trump ever president again? That's my measure. And so I don't know if it, so. So criminal charges are not a precondition to that. So I don't want people on my side to think that they are. They aren't. This thing. This thing. I am feeling so good right now. Like this thing by chiseling and all the stuff, I don't know if it happens by November, but I do believe Trump has peaked. I think that I think that I think the one six committee peaked him. Peaked him. There's a bigger fish too. And when I say yeah. a bigger fish, it's not even so much a person, Juliet, right? It's an idea. I mean, yeah. what we have to think at the end of the day, this is all about whether or not you are a deeply religious conservative in Arizona who believes the Constitution was divinely inspired or whether or not, uh, you know, your politics are different. 
at the end of the day, this fight really has to be about the fact that government can't survive. Democratic government yeah. can't survive. Cannot survive. One set of people can say things like, you know what, there are no facts or evidence to support what I'm saying. I'm just going with my gut. <laughs> like, we can't survive. And I'll use violence to justify that, right? I mean, that that is truly, that, I mean, that's what they're saying. So- have you seen any indication uh, or have you heard any murmurings that the hearings are starting to, you know, kind of pierce the veil of what's been uh, mostly intransigent, you know, a uh, big lie movement? I think movement. the number of, I, the first, the first data I've seen is the number of people watching it has, has, is, continues. The number of Republicans who are watching it closely continues. I don't know if we're, I don't know, I haven't seen the polling yet, but I, I know, you know, anecdotally, uh, the fact that Fox News can't even avoid this, like, you know, they're going to go after it. It's working. I guess also, I hear success in the silence. There's no defense of Trump in the GOP leadership right now. It's the crazies. Yeah, we're always going to get this crazy or that crazy. I don't, McConnell, hello, where are you? He's, to me, he's the most powerful. I mean, to me, he can, he can, make this happen. I mean, his silence is interesting. Let's just say, let me just put it that way. Let's just say. What do you think is coming up next? What should people anticipate next in these hearings? Uh, there's been discussion that Jenny Thomas, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, is going to testify. I read that she said she couldn't wait. What's coming up next in these hearings? The next hearing is the tax on the Department of Justice. So that will be a little bit bureaucratic, but I think it's going to show the same thing, like lying attorneys who were, you know, civil servants who were told to do these things and refused. I mean, that's the thing. It's just like the cowardliness of the power elite. And here's these, you know, people out just taking on Trump. The one I'm most interested in is, is the day of at the White House. There's now uh, reporting that there is a video of what Trump was doing that day. There was a videographer, uh, Mark Meadows, is uh, the, was the chief of staff has tried to come off Scott clean. Clearly, he was he was moving this, and so those are the things I'm looking for. Is I'm constantly looking for this nexus between the violence and the the White House, and it may not rise to the level of a legal collusion, like whatever you want to call it, whatever the term is, but it's it's um, it's un-American, and that's what that's that's the narrative here. You know, Juliet. Before we go. Um, you write about counterterrorism. You talk about how we should look at these situations. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book. And thank you again for joining me today because you're actually right now in the middle of your book tour. Yeah. Uh, and so you took some time to talk to me during these hearings. Appreciate no, thanks you. Thanks so much. Oh, um, no, I appreciate it. The hearings are part of it. I have a, my new book is called The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. It is about learning to fail safer. In other words, to anticipate the harm and then try to minimize the consequences. And that's success. That we, that we should view as success. And we tend to, as a society, as parents, whatever else we think, why are all these bad things happening? Why are they... And, you know me, I'm a pretty, I mean, I've been in this world a long time and I'm a pretty happy person. So why is that? I mean, part of it is if you anticipate and then you try to fail safer, right? You either, you know, you minimize the losses. I don't say fail safe because 
I don't believe in safe. I don't think it exists. Uh, and so the book is part history about all these disasters that you thought you knew that I re retell. Part of it is just like disclosing my career, not my career, but my profession, which we tend, most people don't know about, right? It's like part of everyone's life, but most people don't know preparedness and emergency management and disaster management. Um, and ultimately it's to help us rethink our, our standards of success. Um, and I think that's important in a time when it's really hard to stop all bad things from happening. So it's meant to be empowering. Well, I, I think that the concept certainly is, and failing safer kind of dovetails back to the point you made in your piece in The Atlantic about how these hearings are really providing an off-ramp by making it harder for people to embrace a story that resulted in uh, Lady Ruby being harassed and Shay, the election worker, being harassed. It's harder for people to embrace a story that resulted in terrorizing those women. Yeah. If that's the case, then even if we don't prevent the next problem entirely, maybe we'll fail a little bit safer. That's exactly uh, right. Right? Like I tell stories of where it succeeded. We always tell the story of the the bad things, because right, because the news follows the bad. And I also want to say, look, there were people who made judgment calls that saved lots of lives, right? There were there were things that happened. My my favorite story out of it is we all focus on Fukushima in Japan after the nuclear meltdown, after the earthquake and then the tsunami and the nuclear meltdown. There was actually a nuclear facility down the street, closer to the water, closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, had extensive damage, no radiation leak. We don't talk about that one. What did that one do right? So I focus on what, what, what did we do good there to learn to fail safer, right? They saw what was coming. They prepared for what was coming. And with about six minutes to spare, they, they turned off the nuclear facility and stopped radiation leak. And so in my weird world, you know, if I have an earthquake, a tsunami, and radiation leak, and earthquake, tsunami, no radiation leak, I'm choosing... I'm choosing no radiation leak. So that's well, that's just, that's failing safer. Yeah, because something's going to happen, right? Something's, something's gonna going to happen somewhere. And so uh, thanks to you and what you point out in the book, it just reminds us to think about how to prevent the next bad thing, or at least to mitigate its harm, at least to that's mitigate. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Fail safer. We can all do that. Juliet, I cannot tell you, old friend. I'm not old. Not old. <laughs> friend, I'm not, not a long time. No, we're not old. Although, I, you know, next time people will laugh, but I hadn't ta seen Tanya in a couple years, and I get on, and I realize how gorgeous she looks, because she always looks gorgeous. I had just gotten off the Peloton. I was like, you didn't tell me this was videotaped. So I, I, I quickly put on, uh, you know, what do we call it? What do the girls call it? We painted. I painted. We painted. Um, we painted. I painted. I, I do that sometimes. I turn off. But um, it's so great. I'm so thrilled by this. This is so, well, it's always I, fun with you. It, it is wonderful to have you here, my friend. And thank you for helping to thank break you. all of this down for us. And I really hope you will come back because you know I'm going to ask. Of course, my pleasure. And thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. Take care. Thanks.